0: Welcome to Business Buzz. I'm Harold Littlejohn-CPA, your host today. We have a really interesting guest, and I've got some interesting economic news to discuss with you, and I really am glad to be back. I had a super busy September, and I haven't done a live show for a couple of meeting times, but I'm back. I'm glad you're here, and we're going to have a great hour. So stay tuned, and we're going to have a lot of fun. So the first thing we're going to talk about today Is an article called The Financial Doomsday Clock is Close to Midnight. Now, I think about this a lot because I like to share with you, the audience, things that I'm reading so that you can be at least on your toes as far as your economic news that you may not be getting from other locations. And that's why I do this. So I'm not here to bring anybody down. I'm just here to help you to let you know that there's other viewpoints that you may not be hearing when you tune into CNN and Fox and even the the news you get on this station at the top of the hour. So that's why I do this. So this author is a Swiss man named Egon von Greyers. And I'm just going to read some of this article for you because this is the type of thing you really need to know. And I think you'll find it very interesting. There are probabilities in markets and there are certainties. It is very probable that investors will lose a major part of their assets held in stocks, bonds, and property over the next five to seven years. It is also probable that they will lose most of their money held in banks, either by bank failure or currency debasement. What is not probable but absolutely certain is that investors who buy the new—now get this— Uh, That's my little interjection. The new Austrian 100-year bond yielding 2.1% are going to lose all their money. Who actually buys these bonds? No individual investing his own money would ever buy a 100-year paper yielding 2% at a historical top of bond markets. So if you're following me here, He's pointing out that these governments are now issuing 100-year bonds to try to keep this whole Ponzi scheme going. So he continues, The buyers are, of course, institutions who manage other people's money. These will be the likes of pension fund managers who will be elated to achieve a 2% yield against negative short yields and not much above zero for anything else. Now, what he's saying there is that in Europe there's actually negative yields going on on these government bonds. If you want to buy a bond from a good government like Germany that's considered to be stable, you actually pay them for the privilege of having your money not in the bank and in a bond instead. These managers will hope to be long gone before anyone finds out the disastrous decision they have taken with pensioners' money. But the danger for them is that the bond will be worthless long before the 100 years are up. It could happen within five years. Then he goes on this great list that you need to know. There are a number of factors that will guarantee the demise of these bonds. Number one, interest rates are at a 5,000-year low and can only go up. In fact, this article has a graph that shows interest rates since 300 B.C., and they basically fluctuate between A low of 3% in the 1700s, down to 2% in the 1800s, near zero in uh, around 1900, early 1900s, and then now we're back to zero after 2000. So that's what the graph looks like. Keep that in mind. Interest rates are at a 5,000-year low and can only go up. His second point, inflation will surge, leading to hyperinflation. And like I've told you before, Venezuela is having that right now. Then the, number three, sovereign states are bankrupt and will default. Now, what does that mean, will default? Well, what that means is that countries like the United States, that would be considered a sovereign state. We have a $20 trillion national debt that will never be repaid. So that's what he's saying, will default. Then his his point number four, since this is talking about a European-Austrian bond, the euro will go to zero, not over 100 years, but in the next five to seven. Now keep in mind, folks, that your money is sitting with these type of pension fund managers. If you're a retiree with a CalPERS retirement, you're subject to this same thing. So I'm going to read on a little bit. But pension fund managers will not be blamed for their catastrophic performance. No conventional investment manager and by the way, those are people you work with, could ever have forecast the events I am predicting above. Thus, they are totally protected in spite of poor performance since they have done what every other manager does, which is to make the pensioners destitute. The average institutional fund is managed based on mediocrity. It is never worth taking a risk in order to do something different than your peer group. If you do the same as everybody else, you will be handsomely rewarded, even if you lose most of the money. Most people in the world don't have pension coverage, so they won't be concerned. But for the ones who are covered by pensions, they won't be much better off. Most pension funds are massively underfunded, and the amount they are underfunded is absolutely astounding. We are looking at a staggering $400 trillion gap, according to the World Economic Forum. The reasons are quite straightforward. An aging population, inadequate savings, and low expected returns. These calculations don't take into account the coming collapse of all the assets that pension funds invest in, such as stocks, bonds, and property. It is a virtually certain prediction that there will be no conventional pensions paid out in any country over the next 5 to 10 years and longer. The consequences are clearly catastrophic. The only country with a well-funded private pension system is India. Most families in India hold gold, and as gold appreciates, this will protect an important part of the Indian population. Global debt and unfunded liabilities are continuing to run out of control. With total debt at $240 trillion, pension liabilities at $400 trillion, other liabilities such as medical care at, say, $250 trillion, and derivatives at 1.5 quadrillion, we are looking at a total global debt, including liabilities, of around 2.5 quadrillion. The U.S. is doing its part to grow debt exponentially. With the debt ceiling lifted temporarily, I talked about that a couple of weeks ago. What kind of debt ceiling do we have when it keeps getting uh, raised? U.S. federal debt has swiftly jumped by $321 billion to $20.16 trillion. Over the last year, U.S. debt has gone up by $685 billion. Over the next few years, U.S. debt is forecast to increase by over $1 trillion per year. But when trouble starts in financial markets in the next couple of years, we will see that debt level increase dramatically by tens of trillions or even hundreds of trillions of dollars. As the long-term interest chart above shows, that one that I told you where we're at a historical low interest, Rates are at a historical bottom, and the 35-year cycle also bottomed last year. Rates are now in an uptrend, and at some point in the next year or two will start to accelerate. Within five years, rates are likely to be in the teens or higher, just like they were in the 1970s. Bonds will collapse, including the 100-year Austrian issue, leading to major defaults. With global debt in the hundreds of trillions of dollars, more and more money will need to be printed just to finance the interest costs. So more will be printed to prop up failing banks and government deficits. And that is how hyperinflation will start. In parallel, currencies will collapse and finish their move to zero, which started in 1913 when the Fed was created. That's the Federal Reserve Bank. The Federal Reserve is a private bank created by private bankers for their own benefit, giving them total control of money. The Swiss National Bank is also a private bank quoted on the Swiss Stock Exchange but it is not owned by investment bankers. 45% is held by the Swiss states and 15% by s- state banks. The rest is held by private shareholders. The shares of the Swiss National Bank have gone up two and a half times in the last 12 months. Now get this, the, the reason I'm saying this is the Swiss National Bank is sort of like our Federal Reserve, but for Switzerland. Now listen to this. This is the biggest hedge fund in the world with a balance sheet of $808 billion. This is bigger than Swiss gross domestic product. For comparison, the Federal Reserve's balance sheet is 25% of our gross domestic product. So what he's saying is that in Switzerland, their central bank is actually buying stocks and their central bank is actually four times bigger than ours in relation to the economy over there. But anyway, I wanted to share that with you because nobody else will tell you unless you go looking for it the facts about what's happening with the global economy and the money printing and the possibility of higher inflation. So if you do think that I'm you know, crazy, well, I'm not sure if you do, but if you do, that's fine. Even if there's a 10% chance of me being right, can you afford to not make sure that you're covered in case that 10% is correct? That's the way I look at it. So uh, like I say, you can call me anytime. I'm Harold Littlejohn. I've been in the same location for 27 years on Mangrove Avenue in Chico. You can call me at 895-3353. You can also write me, Harold at hlittlejohn.com. You can visit my website, hlittlejohn.com, and get in touch with me, and we can discuss ways that you can at least prepare to protect yourself from the upcoming tsunami of debt that this whole world is facing, like this article just said. And uh, this, uh, the author's name is Egon, E-G-O-N, Vaughn, V-O-N, and then Greyer's, G-R-E-Y-E-R-Z. And if you want to look up some of his writings, just, I would say you could probably Google that and, and find these articles that I pick up and read. So, so that's my little uh, global economy uh, time for today. I um, promised you we have a real entertaining guest in here today. She's a local author. She's got a lot of interesting background in writing, and you're going to really enjoy uh, the things that she'll be able to tell us all about. I'm going to learn a lot more, too. Uh, her name is Linda Mylink. How are you doing today, Linda?
1: Oh, pretty good.
0: Great. Thanks for coming in.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Well, uh, we're, uh, by the way, I am also a writer. I'm not published yet. I have a book that's in the works, and so I met Linda through my Uh, Writing club on the place called meetup.com. We meet every couple of weeks and go over our various projects with local writers. And Linda just has a great history of some of the things she's been involved with as a professional writer. So, Linda, you actually grew up in the Midwest?
1: That's right. I was born and raised in Toledo, Ohio, in the heart of the industrial belt. My father was a welder in a factory.
0: Wow. And so, You ended up going to college in Toledo, and that's right. And tell tell me about that degree that you got.
1: Oh, I got a bachelor's and a master's degree from the University of Toledo, and um, actually in English literature. Wow. Um, And that's the the place that you the thing you do if you're not real concerned about making a living, I guess. (laughs) But I did, you know, I've done pretty well for myself uh, finding ways to make money from writing.
0: Right, that's really good because a lot of people like to write exactly but it's hard to actually go out and make money doing it that's that's kind of tough
1: right I was at a conference one time and they said how many of you in here would love to make your living by writing and every hand in the room went up but mine because I knew (laughs) how hard it was and how you have to scramble and what you have to go through right right. uh, to get it to get there yeah
0: so what what would you say would be? You were a teacher for quite a while before you were actually a professional writer, or did you kind of do it a little bit simultaneously? Or
1: no, no, I uh, wrote mostly poetry. Uh, I think I wrote my first poem when I was about four years old. I always knew I wanted to be a writer, um, and that's why I majored in English literature. I planned on getting a PhD, but I I really ha- grew to hate critics. They weren't writers and I didn't want to be one of them. So uh, I was kind of faced with the idea of, of what to do with my life and I taught as uh, when I was getting my master's degree and I liked teaching English. Uh, when I came to California, I was close to 40 and I got my first job um, as a tech writer at oh, okay. Chevron and right. I had to do technical writing, which was just horrible. Can you now, imagine how, going how did, from poetry to tech writing?
0: How did you end up with that job? Did you find it in the newspaper or something?
1: No. Um, that's kind of interesting. I had worked uh, for a summer uh, at a refinery in Toledo, Ohio and uh, I had learned all of the strange, they used this computer program called Volkswriter and they were looking for someone in the Bay Right area who knew Volkswriter <laughs> and I was literally the only person.
0: Wow. Well, we're going to pick right up on that when we come back. Don't go anywhere. Business Buzz will be right back after the break.
2: With home mortgage rates still near historic lows, now is a great time to buy or refinance. Michael Humes is your one-stop mortgage lender. Michael Humes and his knowledgeable staff are well-versed in a wide variety of loan types, including FHA, Fannie Mae, USDA, HomePath, and HART. For a free evaluation of your mortgage needs, call him 530-624-7942. That's 530-624-7942.
0: Be sure to listen to Michael's Mortgage Market Update every Wednesday at 2.30 on Your Home Today. This is Michael Humes, Mortgage Specialist at Network Mortgage, located at 155 East 3rd Avenue, NMLS License 230273, BRE License 125 employed by Network Mortgage, BRE License 184 NMLS License 358237, Equal Housing Opportunity.
2: Thank you to everyone who has helped a friend fighting breast cancer, to anyone who has volunteered time or money to the American Cancer Society for helping us save lives. Thank you for all you've done for the cause and are about to do because it's time for the Making Strides Against Breast Cancer Walk. If we walk together, no one has to walk alone. Register and start fundraising today at makingstrideswalk.org. Making Strides Chico is October
0: 21st. Call 1-800-227-2345. Welcome back to Business Buzz. This is Errol Littlejohn, CPA. I'm here with Linda Myling, And we were talking about her first professional writing job was as a tech writer for Chevron Oil. Was that down in Richmond or something? In Richmond, exactly. And the topic we were discussing during the break was if a young person or a college student is interested in being a writer, you could probably warn them that they may not be writing their favorite style. So talk about what it would be like to break into the writing business, and you might have to do something you don't really love right at the very start while you're learning.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. When I was in college, they'd always say, oh, don't prostitute yourself by writing, you know... uh, Tech writing. You know, tech writing or public relations writing. You know, you have to write poetry and be pure. Uh, And I had the same attitude. I just really needed to make a living. (laughs) And uh, I found that... uh, All the things that I needed to do as a tech writer to be concise, to be clear, uh, to be interesting, to try to keep people from falling asleep. All those things were helpful in any kind of writing. every every genre you go through, every job you have is always working towards the one thing, which is becoming a better writer. And I actually think these experiences and my experiences in journalism helped me to become a better poet. Um, today I still write and publish poetry, which is my first love. but I don't have, I don't have any qualms about Taking money for my writing.
0: Well, yeah, you have to pay the bills and make a living, and that's normal. Now, when you were a teacher for all those years, you taught at the junior college level. Exactly,
1: and and uh, well, at the University of Toledo, which was a four-year college. Right,
0: and. Were you teaching different types of writing classes, like creative writing, literature? Did you teach different things?
1: I did at various colleges, yeah. I've taught everything from uh, literature, creative writing, essay writing, business English, uh, and ESL, as a matter of fact. And um, I found you know these same principles are basically true in just about anywhere you go. You write concisely, you write clearly— um, and uh, <clears throat> you need to develop what your own style is.
0: Now, would you have any advice for a young person that might be going to Chico State or Butte College right now that likes English literature and thinking of that major? Would you say teaching is a pleasant thing to do? I mean, <laughs> I mean every job has good and bad. I'm just, mm-hmm. your experience as an English teacher, I mean, did you feel like you got a chance to utilize your writing skills while teaching teaching? Other people writing? I mean... Not too much. Or did you feel like you'd like to do more writing?
1: Well, you know, I love teaching. And I really... It's my second love, or maybe even my first love. I love teaching. But among other professional writers, some writers like to teach, some hate it. Right. And, you know, some people do not want to bother with other students' essays. And when you're teaching freshmen in college, I can't say that that's really inspiring unless you have a real desire to teach right. as so, well. Right, so, yeah. So, mm-hmm. so-
0: so writers shouldn't consider teaching unless they really also want to teach.
1: Oh, yeah it's, and, not, yeah, it's not at fair. Robert Frost was the world's worst teacher. He used to say to the students, do you have anything particular you want to keep in these papers? And then he'd throw them out.
0: <laughs> nice guy or?
1: No, he was not a particularly nice guy. He wrote Mm -hmm. beautiful poetry, but he was not a nice guy. He left, you know, he refused to support his family. They ate potatoes for dinner. He cheated on his wife. You'd never know it from reading his poetry. He sounds like just a wonderful man.
0: Is he the one who wrote Good Fences Make Good Neighbors?
1: Exactly. That's
0: the Mm -hmm. one I remember of his, because I'm not a huge poetry expert, so I'm sort of winging it on some of these guys.
1: Oh yeah, well I don't think most people are. Yeah, Um, you know that's not. uh, It's not a very you know popular dinner party conversation making. Believe me, I know.
0: Well, there's there are certain circles though where they are in these writing clubs, and Mm -hmm. I mean Mm where they talk about poetry twenty four seven. Some groups, sure, yeah. There are some
1: writing groups that are strictly poetry. I've been in them before. But back to your question about young writers and what they should do. When people always say, "I always wanted to be a writer." That always strikes me as odd because, you know, if you want to be a writer, you write. You know, you don't say, I always want to do this someday. You just right. sit down and write. And the wonderful thing about having a professional job is you have to get over writer's block. I mean, you have to, you can't just say to your boss, oh, I have writer's block. I can't write today. Right. Um, you turn on your computer and everyone in the room does the same thing and you start to write. And I think it's a fantastic experience. And my writing writing teacher made us write two hours a day and i think it's a great habit uh some of the world's best writers wrote every day and you develop the habit and that's my better than inspiration better than anything else if you want to be a writer write. write.
0: right yeah that's the problem people think they want to do something and they think 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 and what they really need is just do
1: Mm -hmm. yeah just
0: go in and do it now the the real interesting part of your writing career was when you ended up after being a tech writer, did you have some teaching time after that or did you get into the other writing that we're gonna talk
1: about? Uh, well, when I was uh, at pa- the Paradise, when I went into journalism, I was not teaching at that time right. until and after I.
0: And you became a staff type journalist at the Paradise Post?
1: Mm-hmm. That's right. And then, was I'm, that
0: around 1990 or something? Or? That's
1: exactly right, June yeah. 1990.
0: Right. And so what was that like, your first job as a journalist, writing newspaper stories?
1: I remember the f- first, the second day, I woke up and I had like three stories to finish by Monday. And I thought, this is insane. Nobody can write three stories by Monday. And I really thought hard about just not getting back.
0: Right, because it seemed like it was just <laughs> not going to happen.
1: And then I thought, well, I'll just you know, the, the, I, I'll just do my best, and maybe they'll fire me. And I learned that you can write a lot more. Not all of it's great, but you can write a lot more than that. Right, especially and, when
0: you're on, and that's your job. And right, it's, yeah, it's right. your
1: job, right. and uh, so. But I loved being a reporter so much. I would drive to work and think, oh my gosh, I would pay people let me do this right right and I and get I get job. paid right. it was an amazing feeling yeah so
0: do you remember your first story at the Paradise Post I mean does the or the one of the first ones does...
1: um, I remember why well, I have two memories one was it was dreadfully hot and I wrote a lot of weather stories and then there was a woman who was 64 and had just gotten out of a, uh, a metal institution and at the time that people were Going to nursing homes, she finally got out of an institution and was starting her life. And I loved that story. And all of, during my career, I would see her walking back and forth to the store. And that story won uh, first prize for feature writing at the California Newspaper Publishers Association that year. So I had a good start. Wow. And that was a wonderful story. So you were a prize-winning journalist
0: your first year?
1: My first month. I wrote that your story first my first wow. month. yeah. <laughs>
0: That's, I had some good really teachers cool. along yeah.
1: the way, though. that was. Now, uh, did the
0: staff at the Post help you with things? I mean, were they kind of like experienced guys, or did you have to kind of do your own thing? It's okay I, to say whatever.
1: Uh, yeah, I, I, I never found that going into a new job as a journalist, people are particularly helpful. Um, your Your editor might be, but I think there's a lot of ego that goes on. I remember everybody would get up and go to lunch, And leave me sit there. Um, And I didn't.
0: Like competition? They don't want to see somebody too good come in and.
1: Well, it's not that so much as they kind of just watch you and they want to see what you're going to be like. Are you going to be a team player? Are you going to be. Are you going to grab. Are you going to steal stories from them? Are you going to stab them in the back? So I think that, you know, yeah, as a journalist, I have to say it's a little. It's not quite hazing. But right. you kind of have to pay your dues, and you right. know you write a lot of st- for a while, really yeah. bad stuff. You get, you know, a lot of really boring stories to write. Right. And right. Uh, so, no, I didn't find them helpful. My boss was very helpful, Mark Craddock. I still am in contact with him, and yeah, he was he was terrific. But no, I didn't find them to be all a welcoming not like our group here. Oh no, no. <laughs> our
0: writing group is very friendly. Very no, supportive. Nobody's really making direct money at our group, so that probably helps it to be less competitive and no. We're 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 fine there. So how you were a reporter for a year and a half or so?
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And
0: then what was your next position with the Paradise Post? Well,
1: I was there just there like six months or so, uh, and I was I became the assistant editor. There was a lot of turnover because people go to small papers, and then they get a little experience and go to a better paper, which was what I expected to do. So there's a lot of turnover, and I became the assistant editor. And then, like, yeah, it was about a year and a half later that uh, I became the editor.
0: Wow. So you became editor of paradise post and you were the editor for 12 years 12 years
1: Mm
0: -hmm. wow we're going to talk about some of that because i know it gets pretty interesting when when you're the editor instead of the reporter so we'll get into some of those stories so we'll be right back stay tuned to business buzz see you in a minute KKXX is excited to present Seeds of Truth with Joe Holcraft Each weekday evening, Joe has hosted the Catholic Hour every weekend for the last eight years. And Seeds of Truth promises the same Catholic understanding of sacred scripture, contemporary faith-based topics, and the latest news from around the world. If you have questions about faith, join Joe and the Seeds of Truth right here on KKXX each evening, Monday through Friday.
2: Rock House Dining and Espresso is known for their patio. Enjoy the ducks and chickens visiting the patio in their environmental, farm-fresh, lively atmosphere. Rock House is an iconic landmark in Butte County since the 1930s. Seven minutes north of the Lime Saddle Bridge, only two miles past the hardware store. Originally built in 1937, the two buildings served as restaurant and tavern, shower house, barber shop, gas station, and cafe. The coffee shop is a cozy hangout spot, great for coffee and conversation, and working as both functioning dining and a fun look back at our rich Butte County history. Visit the patio and enjoy. Rock House serves burgers, pizza, coffee, and smoothies. Enjoy music and great ambiance, conversations, and service. And there's a Christian band coming October 7th, live at 5, live music every Saturday. It's Sinners and Saints on the main stage at Rock House Dining and Espresso on Highway 70 in Yankee Hill.
0: That newborn baby is going to need a lot of special nourishment in order to grow up healthy and strong. The same is true for those who are new in their walk with Jesus. The Bible says they need spiritual milk to nourish their souls at a critical point in their life. That's what we try to provide with the teaching and talk on our station. And when you send them your financial support, you're helping to accomplish something powerful. You're helping us get spiritual nourishment to those who vitally need it. So thanks for looking out for those newborns of all ages. Tell your friends about Life Radio, KKXX, AM and FM. okay welcome back to business buzz we're here talking to linda Mylink, and we were just talking about how she became the editor of the paradise post and you were the editor there for 12 years
1: No, exactly
0: wow and this is during the era of dying or starting to die newspapers is that correct around early 2000s or
1: well i around yeah by the end time i left uh, By 2012 small newspapers. So? Right. Yes. Yeah. Well, it was 2002 when I launched Oh, I'm
0: sorry. Yeah. And I,
1: I, it was, it was just the beginning of the era when large, uh, franchise operations started to take over the local news, which was, is a complete disaster as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and you're pretty
0: passionate about that. You were telling me that, tell me, tell us about the, uh, Newspapers between Sacramento and Redding and what's going on?
1: Oh, right. They, they are all owned by a single newspaper, Bay Area News Group, and uh, by a, a, the same owner. And so there's no competition. And what they do is the, we, the Paradise Post used to have 15 people working about in the editorial department, and now it has two. And most of uh, – so there's no competition, and they have nobody to cover anything except – Crime and a few basic stories, but for what's going on in government right now is anybody's guess. I mean, they could right, be siphoning off no, millions of dollars. There's no
0: reporting of it.
1: There's no absolutely no reporting of it. And uh, you know, you look on, you look in the paper, and there's like so and so had a car accident, and. Uh, It's like nobody cares, but you can run out and cover a a car accident in 45 minutes. It takes time to do investigative journalism, and we don't have it anymore. At the time, the owners of the Paradise Post, when I worked there, they were independent. They were newspaper men through and through. We really believed in what we did. Uh, We were on a mission, and our mission was to be as objective as possible, and to tell the truth, even when it hurt people you might like a whole lot. I had a good friend uh, who worked at Town Hall, and I used to always say, you know, if I catch you embezzling, I'll come over and I'll cry with you, and then I'll write the story. (laughs) And there was this idea that newspaper people had no friends, and they recognized no enemies. And that is completely, that idea is completely novel. I don't think most young people today even understand that that was the objective of most newspapers.
0: It's sort of like these days the alternative people like on YouTube and things like that that are doing some investigative of investigation of things that mainstream newspapers aren't.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, they do.
0: They do some of that, but what I've heard from them because I listened to some of them, they've been strangled revenue-wise. Like mm-hmm. five years ago, This one guy was saying if he put up a YouTube video every few days that got 10,000 views, he could almost make a living doing YouTube videos. And what YouTube being owned by Google, which is basically a CIA front, Mm -hmm. they now cut out that revenue so that the alternative viewpoint people can't really make money on YouTube anymore. And I'm sure it's that way on a lot of web-based reporting So they're basically strangling any alternative news.
1: Exactly, and strangling is a really good word. And when I was at the post, uh, we really tried on our editorial pages to get as many opinions as we could. We had, I had one guy who was a libertarian, and he would write three letters to the editor a week, and of course we couldn't publish all of them. And he was a pretty good writer, and he used to call all the time and accuse me of not publishing him because I was trying to strangle his news. And I said, why don't you write a column? Because he had really good ideas. And I considered it my job and my duty to... Have the community express as many opinions as possible. It wasn't. We had our own editorials, and that was our opinion. But on the other hand, we really welcomed others, and you could see them all on the same pages. Where now, you have to, if you want an alternative opinion, you, if you can find one at all, you have to go to another publication. Right. Um, It's it's incredibly sad, and corporate America uh, basically. Decides what we hear and what we don't hear. We're just right. completely—that is it. I mean, right. Google, um, these other places, the the Bay Area News Group right now, um, for instance. Is there Is their
0: acronym Bang?
1: <laughs> it should be. <laughs> there are people who are taking jobs as editors who are told when they start. Now, under no cases will you ever be able to express your own opinion. We want you to just write right wing news. And we won't tolerate it. And they're editors of paper, and they do what they have to do. Now, in my viewpoint, that is prostitution. That's something I have never done or never was asked to do by the owners of the Post, no matter how much they might disagree with me.
0: There's one thing that came up for me that I heard back in the late 90s. Someone told me, and this directly relates to newspapers, even though this was a TV show, 60 Minutes used to have a few cutting-edge topics that were kind of shocking sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I heard, and I've never really been able to confirm this, I don't think, other than in some little things I've found, but what it is is there was going to be an episode on 60 Minutes. It was going to be called The Most Corrupt County in the United States, and it was about Butte County government.
1: Oh, my gosh.
0: And it got pulled like in the last day right before it was going to air, it got pulled. Somebody got it yanked. Mm -hmm. And that is another example of the same kind of thing.
1: Yes. I haven't heard of that. Although I've heard of, of many really, really egregious, uh, things that have happened here in Butte County. Uh, one thing, if you notice, like our local elections, uh, people get elected over and over again. Nobody in town even knows who their council members are. Nobody cares anymore. Uh, we, weren't, we didn't just give people news they wanted to have. We also gave them news we felt they needed to have. Right. And to make it interesting enough, um, I know of uh, one editor of a local newspaper who got fired for saying something unflattering about Whitmire. Um one of, the,
0: one of the advertisers,
1: he did one of the biggest advertisers, so and he, he said he something wrote, unflattering. Did he
0: write an article about him? Or?
1: I think it was a column piece, and he said something unflattering about him, and he was asked to apologize, and uh, he didn't. And this is as far as I know. And he was fired. And when I was at the Paradise Post, the advertising department was totally separate from what what we.
0: Right, they would keep it did. like. Like church and state. You have exactly. a separation. Exactly, exactly.
1: Right. And if somebody came to me from the advertising department and said, you know, wow, can you do a story about this or that? Unless it was newsworthy, my answer was no. And I had the authority over the editorial department. Somebody couldn't come in and tell me from business what, what I was going so to do. So while
0: you were editor, did you ever have an advertiser? Ask you to pull an article or something? Or? I
1: didn't have direct contact with advertisers. The advertising department did. Um, and sometimes they would come over and um, just say, well, it would be really great if you did a story about this guy. Usually it was that kind of thing. Did um, they ever
0: come over and say it would be really great if you didn't do the, a story about mm-hmm. such and such?
1: They usually would come over and say, I don't think you should do this story. One I remember was we were doing a story. <laughs> we well,
0: commissions, right? Yes, yes. <laughs>
1: okay. uh, we were doing a story about whether it was less expensive to shop in Chico or Paradise, and the answer was it was cheaper to shop in Paradise. And they did everything. The advertising department really didn't want that story. They keep coming and saying, "I don't know how you're going to do it. It's not going to be fair. It's it's right. you and know all
0: of a sudden they're interested in your statistical ability to do a correct article." Exactly. Whereas before, they never cared. Exactly. And that was because, the kind of thing right. they would do. Yeah. Because most of the advertisers are from Chico, right? Exactly.
1: No, yeah. no. At, at that time, we had a lot from Paradise. Oh. It was kind of, but I think, the opposite. the somebody
0: from Chico was not, didn't want to hear that story. No,
1: that- mostly the people from Paradise didn't want to hear it because it was cheaper to shop in Chico.
0: Oh, and the okay. people in, okay.
1: advertise in that advertised long-term in paradise did not want to see a oh, story come out saying, yes, fine. the opposite. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's better idea to go down the hill and spend your, your right. money you on gas. Go to Costco
0: and Walmart. And, yeah. right.
1: right. And they, did, they really didn't want to see that. And it wasn't our intention to malign anybody, but people talked about it all the time. And if people are talking about something, that's what a newspaper should be focused on. People should focus on right. what... What uh, uh, what people what what people are interested in? You know, people think journalism is about just uncovering huge scandals, but it's also about walking down the street and whatever is going on, um, people want to know about.
0: Right. The uh, you had a quote you were telling me about from Thomas Jefferson. Oh yeah. About, you know, newspapers and things like that. Can you repeat that one? That was a good one.
1: Oh sure. Um, Jefferson once said that if I had to choose between a government uh, without a newspaper or a newspaper without a government, I would have no hesitation in choosing the latter. And the idea was originally newspapers were set out to be, you know, a foil to government and to business and to several different things to give you a different uh, viewpoint and, and to keep a watch on what was going on. And we have totally failed not as journalists, but as a country in keeping that uh, integrity. We no longer have the integrity that we had before. There's also
0: a statistic that I can't quote exactly, but something like 90% of the networks and newspapers and all that are owned by a small amount of total companies. And those companies, maybe 10 or 12 companies, have interlocking board members. Like you'll see people like, you know, George Soros, who, whoever these billionaires are, Ted Turner or somebody, and they'll show up on the boards of more than one company.
1: Exactly. So
0: they actually probably work together in a conspiracy, even though if you say that, People think you're kind of kooky.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't say conspiracy. There was this thing about New World Order, which we all thought was funny when I was a journalist, because none of us ever got our marching orders, and we were all waiting, um, because the press was considered New World Order. I don't think it's a conspiracy, because a lot of times they're working against each other, uh, and they're all struggling for power in their own right. So I can't say it's a conspiracy, but yeah, they can spread their power out, and it's held by you know a, a re- really small Number of elite people.
0: But don't you think the whole idea, you mentioned the idea of a nonprofit paper, because don't you think the whole, uh, just the whole theory that the entire media in the US at least is generating, here's the way I always thought about it. Mm-hmm. And I will tell you how I always thought about it <laughs> as soon as the break's over. So we'll be right back on Business Buzz. Stay tuned. We'll be back with Linda Mylink in just a minute. It seems like every day I'm asked about vitamin D in the sun. The main question being, how much sunlight do I need to expose myself to get an adequate level of vitamin D? So my answer is simply
2: need to and consult your primary care physician if you think
0: you might be deficient in vitamin d i'm dr paul sabin and that's the skin you're in if you have skin care questions make an appointment today with dr paul sabin of north valley dermatology call dr paul sabin
2: today at 342-3686 again that's 342-3686 how to be a great dad in 15 seconds
0: Welcome back to Business Buzz. This is Harold Littlejohn, CPA. We're talking with Linda Mylink, the journalist, editor, of, former editor of Paradise Post, author. And I had had a thought before the break that I'm going to continue on right now. The entire theory of the press in the United States has advertisers buying advertising space or time and networks and newspapers supposedly staying objective. So I'm kind of thinking of it this way. If you look now at how many drug commercials you see on television, if you ever watch TV in the daytime, which occasionally I see a little bit, every other commercial is for some drug. Exactly. And then you look and see that the drug industry is like the number one lobbyist, or maybe right behind the American Bar Association, but I mean, they're way up there in lobbyists and all that. So when you look at it, it's kind of so obvious what's going on that we're going to be we got to admit we're going to be being fed one side of most of these things how how would a network come out with a story about how dangerous a drug is that they just made their last 10 billion in advertising dollars in the past month from that company it's not going to happen so i think that's really the basis of our problem with this whole thing
1: exactly we're just being fed propaganda and it's it's really terribly sad there was a time when I was a child when if you had certain jobs, you weren't, you weren't just making money, you weren't a business person, you were a professional. When I was a teacher, I was a professional. If somebody came to me off when I wasn't working and asked me a question, I would help them. Uh, it used to be a time when drug companies, the people who ran them, they were professionals. They were dedicated to what they did, to helping people. Not money, but there was an integrity that came with the word professional. We had seven kids and a doctor that we never paid all completely off, but he would come and make house calls because he was a professional. Wow. He didn't work four days a week, and I didn't, we didn't have to wait five days for a prescription. He was a professional, and that's what it meant. Now today, money is everything. I am appalled by what I see, and the more and you hear this big thing about the the uh, rise of the new Christian. Uh, it's it's crazy because it's all about money. It used to be about being good at whatever you did and having a clear conscience. Teachers didn't make money back then. Nurses didn't make money they and didn't doctors didn't
0: strike either, did they? No,
1: and just because of the in- matter of integrity, I think they could have. But the idea was that they had so much integrity that they wouldn't. Journalists also, I felt as a journalist that my greatest thing that I had was my integrity. And my husband, like I told you, he works in the Modesto B and commutes because he does it because of integrity. Nobody asks him to change stories or write about this, and he has time to do investigative stories. We've lost it in so many areas. There were just money grubbers, and for anybody to think that this is what Jesus meant— in the right. Bible, <laughs> like, you know, should I charge my patients six times more uh, than, I, than I need to? And these people go to church, and they have their own radio stations. And I, I just can't believe it. There's no excuse for it. Uh, and I, I'm just appalled by all of the other, like you mentioned, the drug industry, so many other industries where we never, we, all we want to know is how much money are we going to get? There right. is no pride in what you do.
0: Now it's interesting because the B newspapers—is it Sacramento, Modesto, and Fresno—is that exactly, their? yeah, and, and they s- are still somewhat independently owned. Yes, family owned? and
1: yes, well, and they are—they still maintain the same kind of integrity right. that so they're like other the newspapers older style did. Newspaper. Yes, right. and that is what it made made it so attractive to my husband. So to he work still
0: there. actually commutes to work in Modesto because he has a job with the B. Mm-hmm. Yes. Wow. Yes, and yeah. what are his favorite topics? What does he like to? Oh, well, like?
1: he covers city hall, and um, he's government is not his favorite. He was there at the Bush recall, um, you know, not the recall, but the hanging Chad deal. Oh, right. He was the, there uh, in yeah, the, Florida, the and he and, hated yeah. it. I wanted to be there so bad, but he cover. He likes to cover social issues. Almost everybody, all the homeless in Modesto know him by name, and he's lived with the homeless uh, out. And so when the topic of homeless comes out up, I feel like we're kind of experts on it, because he okay. knows firsthand it's not a study. Uh, and it, it's really sad, you know uh, he, His ideas, a lot of them are drug addicts. A lot of them are mentally ill people right. who have gotten out of the system and no longer have medication and don't even know how they would get set to right. And a lot of them are people who are unemployed or who, some of them work. They have, you know, part-time jobs at minimum wage. Right. Um, Those are the saddest things.
0: You know, it's interesting the subject of that Florida vote came up because I'm currently trying to read a book, and I've read a little bit of it here, called The History of the Supreme Court by a, a guy named Myers back in like 1910. And it's an awesome book, and I'm trying to read enough of it to boil it down. It's not really an online version Have you ever gone to Google to look for an old book? (laughs) Yes. You get like a picture of the old pages from a library book, and it's very hard to read through. Mm -hmm. But I have the paper copy of this. But the interesting thing about the Hanging Chads is, for me, over the last 20 years when I think of Supreme Court, Mm -hmm. I think of the Saturday morning, I believe it was, because my son was playing soccer, that the Supreme Court came out and said, stop counting those Paper ballots. Mm -hmm. We're going to stop. Yeah, Mm -hmm. That's the one thing I remember about the Supreme Court. And the second one I remember now is the Affordable Care Act, which is called Obamacare. Mm -hmm. They Mm -hmm. were going to knock part of that down where they could have been five to four to knock something down. Right. But Justice Roberts, our conservative, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, the -hmm. conservative hero, Mm -hmm. voted the other way. Right. And so those are the two big Supreme Court things that come to mind for me. My point of this mentioning isn't isn't whether conservative or liberal. My point is I don't think there's any integrity there either. We were talking about right. integrity
1: mm-hmm. in the
0: journalism world. Right. I don't think there's any all the way up to the top now. That's my my opinion.
1: I completely agree. It's really political. I mean, the Republic, uh, Republicans and Democrats both nominate their own people for the Supreme Court. And they used to be there. They are there for a check and balance on the political system. A lot of people don't understand that. They say, well, uh, you know, the the Supreme right. Court has to be answerable to the people. Right. They a were people- never supposed to be answerable to the people. They were there to, in order to um, support the rights of the tyranny Of the majority.
0: And that that whole argument when people start banging their heads about the Electoral College, it's there for a reason. If you just have, you know, once 51 percent, and some states like Oklahoma, I've read, are like this. Once 51 percent of the population works for the government, Mm -hmm. you're never going (laughs) to overturn anything. Exactly. So the whole Electoral College seems unfair. Now, whether Hillary actually got the popular vote, I doubt, but... Even if you say she did, the Electoral College is there for a reason that, you know, three large population centers aren't allowed to elect our president, even if there's 50 million people in each big city. They are exactly, not get to do that.
1: they should be allowed to override uh, what I said is the tyranny of the majority. Right. If 55% of the people voted to go around and kill the other 45%, I mean, that's absurd. Right. But this is what you get when you have a majority rules. Right. The original turns forefathers. Into mob rule. Yes, it's mob rule. And the original constitutionalists, uh, they wanted anything but. They wanted a federal system and they wanted a system where wiser heads would prevail and people who had no vested interest, like the Supreme Court, should make an objective decision. Not all opinions are equal.
0: Right, and the whole idea of them being appointed for life makes sense in that they don't have to worry about being reappointed, which is great in theory. But the problem is then you have ones like Scalia, who go to a ranch owned by, I think, some big Democratic convention people, Mm -hmm. and he turns up dead with no autopsy on a hunting (laughs) trip, Uh, that's a little bit unnerving to me.
1: Well, it is unnerving. Um, I think it's interesting, though, that some of them have been appointed by either the right or the left, and they turned out being... They're not uh, loyal to either party, and I think that's exactly uh, what we what we need to have. But, yeah, and but the whole point about this no autopsy and, and all these other things, we just need better insight how into our government.
0: These, how come none of these people ever, like, die in public? They never <laughs> I mean, not, not that I want them to die. How come they don't, like, die in a car? Well, they can die in plane crashes all the time. Right, I mean, right. How come they don't, like, keel over during the Supreme Court period uh, case
1: well I don't know I mean, most I think most it of should us happen
0: once in a while but yeah it's always at a at, a, at a, a way place or a foreign country you know remember the year that Jimi Hendrix Janis Joplin and Jim Morrison all died
1: oh yes
0: uh you know J- Jim Morrison was in France uh I think Janis Joplin I don't believe she was in the U.S. I know Jimi Hendrix lived in London mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. you know every one of these big deaths is very suspicious and, uh, you know, that's a whole nother topic. Have you ever read about Laurel Canyon? No. and the, the origination of the rock and roll music in the 60s? No, have I
1: you, haven't read have that. Read, I was, I was a you bit young read, on that, actually. Have you actually. ever read
0: that Jim Morrison's father was like the head admiral of the entire Pacific fleet? No. And did you ever know that David Crosby's family is some gigantic Dutch royalty from the 1500s?
1: No, but again, I would ask you for your sources. I'm a really big source person. I drive everybody crazy. It's like they call me and tell me this. Where's your Uh, source? Now, I
0: I have an argument for that. I'm going to butt in. Okay. If I'm in a system that's working against me and crooked, I'll never be able to quote the New York Times or the Washington Post with any of this alternative news. So how can I get you a source that you can rely
1: on? Well, that finding a source that you can rely on is a See, big. What I'm saying. It's a big uh, issue. I'm not, yeah, <clears> saying. but uh, and there's been this big discussion about um, uh, unnamed sources, uh, and I can understand people's. I can really understand their feelings that. Uh, or suspicions that, that we make up the news or something like that. Generally, if you're going with unnamed sources, I'm changing the subject here a little well, bit, you have, to, you have to be willing to reveal those to your editor. And you have to have a you, certain what, number of people. And then there suspe- are.
0: What if you suspect that your editor is working for the CIA?
1: Oh no! I (laughs) see. I I don't. I don't. I mean, there's a certain point at which I go. Okay, I'd have to have a lot of sources to believe that. And I think one of the problems with the news today is it's so sloppy. People can say anything. There's this idea of fake news, and a lot of it is. And when my friends call me up, I just a friend called me the other day and said, "Did you know that Chelsea Clinton had to have all this?" Uh, surgery because she didn't look like her real father isn't Bill Clinton. It's somebody else. And I'm like, Susan, where did you get this? I mean, I just hear this kind of bizarre. I don't know where she got it. If you look up a
0: picture of Webb Hubble, you'll see what they're talking about.
1: Okay, well, I just. That's not proof, though. No, it's just there was. National Enquirer one time got sued, and the guy had to testify. And they said, where do you get your news sources and stories? He said, well, every day I come in and there's a bunch of headlines, and you just pick up a headline and you sit down and you write a story to fit that headline. And he says, well, you know, who do you talk to? Nobody. I just make up my sources. And you have to be able to draw some clear distinction between that and the New York Times or the New York Post or the Washington Times uh, or the New York Uh, or the Washington Post, too. Uh, They're both named Times and Post, and it's kind of funny. But the thing is, is that there's a much, much better chance that you're going to come up with something true in a publication that's got all of everybody's eyes on it than you are someplace like Hubble Bubble or whatever. I mean, I hear these bizarre stories, and this... When the Internet first came out, somebody called me up and said, the great thing about the Internet is we won't need reporters anymore. We can just see the news and all of us will be reporters and we'll run in and write it down. And I thought, oh, my God, no. You'd have no understanding of what you have to do in order for something to pass monster. And right. now we're living in that age. Anybody can make up anything.
0: That's right. We're going to be coming up on the end of the show here, so I want to make sure we kind of wrap things up a little bit. You have really lived the life of a writer for different types of things. You've been an editor and a teacher. So I am just really want to let people know that it can be done if they really love writing. I think that's the thing we want to get across.
1: Just write. If you want to be a writer, just write. Just start writing
0: and edit it later. Well, thanks a lot, Linda. That was really great having you here. Okay. Thank you. Thanks a lot.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Okay, everybody. See you next time on Business Buzz. KKXX, Paradise,
2: K280GL, Chico,
0: and K283AR, Chico, Yuba City, Marysville. Chico Mobile AC Radiator and Auto Repair says, This coming fall season, please remember to drive with the three C's of safety, caution, courtesy, and common sense. Please practice safe and sober driving at all times. Don't be responsible for an accident. This message is compliments of Bob at Chico Mobile AC Radiator and Auto Repair. They're specialists in auto electric system problems, including repairs and installation of alternators, generators, starters, electric windows and locks. Chico Mobile AC Radiator and Auto Repair at 151 East Park Avenue is the place
2: to rely on. With SRN News, I'm Keith Peters in Washington. Hurricane Maria survivors are surveying the damage from the powerful storm which hit Puerto Rico and Dominica with Category 5 winds and rain. Dominica Prime Minister Roosevelt Skerritt says more than 15 people have died on his island. No running water now. We have no electricity.
0: KXX, Paradise,
2: K280GL, Chico, and
0: K283AR, Chico, Yuba City, Marysville.
2: Rock House Dining and Espresso is known for their patio. Enjoy the ducks and chickens visiting the patio in their environmental, farm-fresh, lively atmosphere. Rock House is an iconic landmark in Butte County since the 1930s. Seven minutes north of the Lime Saddle Bridge, only two miles past the hardware store. Originally built in 1937, the two buildings served as restaurant and tavern, shower house, barber shop, gas station, and cafe. The coffee shop is a cozy hangout spot, great for coffee and conversation, and working is both functioning dining and a fun look back at our rich Butte County history. Visit the patio and enjoy. Rock House serves burgers, pizza, coffee, and smoothies. Enjoy music and great ambiance, conversations, and service. And there's a Christian band coming October 7th, live at 5, live music every Saturday. It's Sinners and Saints on the main stage at Rock House Dining and Espresso on Highway 70 in Yankee Hill. With SRN News, I'm Keith Peters in Washington. President Trump isn't backing down.